Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to spend pretty much most of our time, if not all of our time, in the second chapter of the book of Genesis. Should be very easy to find. It's at the very beginning of the Bible, so it shouldn't be too difficult at all. And last week, if you were here, you'll remember that the big idea is that we are not an accident. We didn't just happen along the way. We are of divine design that God had spoken in and he crafted us, as he said, in his image. And so as being image bearers of God, our origin story is that we're special. We're marked apart from all of creation. And tonight, what we're gonna do a deep dive in is two facets of what that means. We're gonna talk about the history and origin of work and the history and origin of human relationships, in particular, marriage. So again, if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're gonna start with verse seven. This is where we pick it up. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And, and I hope you find this as interesting as I do. When you read stories like this, when you read accounts like this, you kinda are left, if you're like me, with a lot of questions like, are we really from dust? What does that even mean? And so scholars have asked this question, great theologians have debated and discussed and come up with all kinds of answers. Some have said, literally, we're from dust. In fact, if you give us enough time, we return to dust. In fact, if you go to a, a memorial service, a funeral service, at some point, someone may quote the old Anglican liturgy, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. From the earth we come, the earth we return. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Just a little reminder of our destiny, right? And so there is a literal approach. We came from the earth, we returned to the earth. There's uh, others who say, no, no, dust is symbolic. If you look at the language, maybe dust means we come from other creatures. Maybe we come from other parts of creation. Maybe, maybe that's through God's hand in all of it. We evolved, and so the dust isn't literal dust, but the dust is metaphorically speaking of uh, primates or metaphorically speaking, something akin to Neanderthal man. And so great theologians, people who love God, get together and have these discussions, sometimes shedding blood with one another. Our intent tonight is not to answer that part of the question, but to simply note when we approach this passage of scripture that we as people, we have an origin of this earth. We're of organic stuff. We have actual existence about us. We are tactile. We are tangible. And so if you go back into the old cultures like the Akkadians, which were the predecessors of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, the Akkadians said people were made of clay or dust. They use that same word or a similar word. Uh, also, they were made of blood and the spittle of the gods. Pleasant, isn't it? It'd be the thought of being spittle from the gods. Uh, the Egyptians, they said that people were crafted by a divine potter. And just imagine as the, the wheel was going around and the forming of that wheel, people were sort of like barnacles on the side of that pottery dish and the, the fingers of the gods flicked the people off and they sort of scampered off. And this was kind of the, the imagery that they had. Now again, they probably weren't trying to answer a scientific question. Probably when they repeated that story, they didn't look at a clay pot and think, 
huh, we're from that. But they were trying to express, we're from something of this earth. But the Genesis story from the very beginning is a different story. The other stories focus on gods who, well, they created people to serve their needs. All of the ancient accounts, the gods were too important to do things like farm, to take care of livestock. The gods needed things like people, which were like cattle, to take care of their needs, to make all those things for them. And so the ancient stories focus on the needs of the god and the, the people weren't important. The people existed to serve the needs of the gods. So people were like dogs, so they were like livestock. They were lower things that weren't important at all. They were expendable to the gods. What are you compared to a god? That would be the general gist all the way into the Greek pantheon of gods of the Roman Empire. But the Genesis story is a very, very different story. It starts out with the idea that God doesn't need us at all. He doesn't need us for, uh, for sustenance. He doesn't need us for nourishment. He doesn't need us to grow things and feed him. That work is not beneath him. He doesn't need us to supply for him. He doesn't even, he even tells the people, build me a tabernacle, build me a temple. But by the way, I don't live there. I don't need you to build that for me. You need to build that for me for you. But it's not something that I need. Whereas all the other gods said, I need that, make that for me, that's special. But the God who reveals himself in the Bible, this is a big, big distinction, not, not to be missed. The God who reveals himself in the word of God doesn't need people to supply for him. In fact, he supplies for people gladly, willingly. And so the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 story begins to answer questions that a lot of times we aren't asking. We oftentimes ask questions because of who we are that are more like geographical, science, historical. So when we approach the text, we begin to ask those questions and go, what do we learn about science from this using a scientific method? But the ancient people, they did not approach the text with those kind of questions. They were asking actually more important questions. Why is the world the way the world is? That was the question that the ancient people were asking. That was the question that was being given here. Now, I want to be clear of something as I said that, because there's some of you that are in the room right now and going, wait a minute, does he believe this didn't happen, that it's all like sort of like a fairy tale? No, I believe it really happened. Does he really believe there's an Adam and Eve? I do believe there is an Adam and there is an Eve. Now, we're going to talk about Adam and Eve as rich in symbolism, but were they real people? I believe they were real people. Why do I think they were real people? Well, they're in the genealogical record of Jesus in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul interacts with them as they are real people and not just some richly symbolic things. They are real people that are talked about in the New Testament. So we're not left, as faithful followers of God, we're not really left with an option to say, well, they probably didn't exist. Oh, they existed. I just want that out there because as we work through this, if you're like me and built like me, when someone's up front talking, you start asking questions like, well, what's he getting at here? What's he really mean? Are we on the same page with each other? Is he crazy? I might be crazy. However, 
However, I think we'll be on the same page with each other. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is attempting to answer the big question of why is the world the way it is? Why are we the way we are? Why, why is that bozo who lives down the street from me the way he is? Why is my crazy supervisor the way she is? Why is work so awesome and yet so hard? Why do I need these relationships? And yet at the same time, the people drive me crazy. Those are the kind of questions that the people then were asking. And really, when we're honest, those are the questions that we ask. And we can't miss this up front is that what we're taught is that people, and if you're taking notes, this is your first fill in the blank, people are uniquely created by God. As people, we are uniquely created by God. Everybody, every human being, uniquely created by God. Now, there's a couple meanings behind that, of course, is that we're, we're not in all of the created order that the scriptures reveal. We are not angelic beings. We do not become angelic beings. Angels are a different created thing. We're not that. But we're not animals either. Sometimes we even ask questions like this. Why would God create people that had the ability to choose to obey him or not obey him and then the world spirals out of control as a result of not obeying him? Why would he even put that before us? He already had technically creation that didn't have that kind of choice. They're called animals. The animals don't have that kind of choice. You know, as the cow is chewing or grazing across the pasture, it doesn't think to itself, today's the day I disobey God. I appreciate him creating me, but today is the day I rebel. No, you know what a cow's thinking? Moo. That's it. That's all the cow's thinking. Something in that genre, right? I'm bilingual. I speak bovine. They, they don't think, no animal, I know some of you are like, you don't know my cat. Uh, my cat actually harbors evil thoughts. That part's true, but that's probably a result of sin entering the world. No, even your cat doesn't harbor ill will towards you. It's just a cat doing what cats do. Animals don't have the, the ability to think reflectively and disobey God. They essentially are engineered to do what God has crafted them to do. And so people were crafted by God uniquely at a space that was separate from the angelic order and separate from the animal order. So I don't know that that really answers the, the question, why did God give us the ability to choose? But one answer that might be a decent answer is he already had things, he already had creation that couldn't choose, and so why would he change anything amongst them? He created us. So, and also, God created us uniquely. A, kind of a bullet point there is that God intended us uh, he intended us to happen all along. We are not the result of some sort of accident. There's no accidental part of our development. And this is where, if you were here last week, we talked about, you know, as, as Christians, we do not have a problem with different scientific explanations for how the world was formed. There's different views out there. And we as believers in Christ don't have a problem with the views but there is one view that is completely incongruent and cannot be held with Christianity. And that view is pure naturalism. Pure naturalism just teaches that without any outside influence through a series of happenstance, 
accidents, lucky breaks, adaptations, survival, what happened as, as a result of all that is ta-da, you're looking at it. This world happened just by the natural happenstance of things and given enough time, it will happen again someplace else. Maybe we're the only thing like this currently existing anywhere, but over time, something like this could happen again in that theory. And as Christians, we'd say, no, 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 God interjects. He may have done it over a lengthy period of time, but God interjects. And so as people uniquely created by God, this was, we are not accidental. Human beings are not accidental beings. And so again, if you were here last week, that meant that we as people, all people have value, all people have responsibility, all people have a capacity towards moral thought and towards worship. And so all that sort of review as it reacts or relates to our big point today of that all people are created uniquely by God. So let's move on. Verse eight. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees, uh, made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So fruit trees. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, for there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. I, you know what, for the record, I'll take bad gold. But good's better. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. It's very cushy there. That's a dad joke. It wasn't funny, was it? No, I appreciate the honesty. We're an honest crew. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now again, we have a, this story is a very real story and the storyteller is using rich and vivid language that is sort of lost on us today. There is so much in just those handful of sentences that has symbols that to us, we're just kind of trying to figure out if, again, if you're like me, you're thinking, all right, a few of those rivers are named, where was that? But before we turn to that question, we have to back up and, and understand what I mean by imagery. So let me show an image on the screen and uh, I just wanna get your reaction to it. You see this, and if you're a US citizen, usually what, it makes you proud, right? Yeah, that's the word. That makes you, it makes you proud. It, it, it induces some patriotism, right? I mean, there might even be a certain sense, like should we stand and, and say the pledge? There's a, there's a uh, for some people they see this and they're teary-eyed. If you've traveled overseas and you see this, you get excited. Or when you touch down on American soil again, you get very excited. For some people they see this image and if it is being tarnished or if it is being abused or disrespected, there's some people that get very upset about that, right? Now, it's, it's a flag, right? It's not America, just for the record, correct? It's a flag, it's a symbol, it's a banner. It represents something. But once it represents that thing, you can't help yourself but feel a certain something in the pit of your being when you see it. 
it moves you. It, it, it does something inside of you that you can't fully explain, right? There's something about that image. Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner, the national anthem, right? And he wrote it at the tail end of the War of 1812 and 1814 as Baltimore Harbor was being defended at uh, Fort, I think, McHenry. And so the, the battle raged through the night and the British were bombarding the fort and trying to, trying to kind of win the day. And of course they did not. And so they had to withdraw. And as they withdrew, the uh, flag that was the storm flag, the smaller flag was lowered and the big star spangled banner, the big beautiful flag was unfurled. And from a ship, Francis Scott Key wrote a poem and he described kind of the night before and then what? The, the flag was what? Still there. Now, if you take the Star Spangled Banner, how many of you, by the way, knew that that was from a poem from the War of 1812? There's a bunch of you that knew that. How many of you didn't know that that was actually a poem written during the War of 1812? How many of you, nothing will raise your hand? You, there will be no question I can possibly, you know, it's actually good. Let's all raise our hand. It just, it's that time of night. It's good. All right, good. I, you know, it's just sometimes good to get the blood flowing. So if you took that poem, if you took that song and tried to recreate the War of 1812, you couldn't do it. If you tried to recreate that battle from the war of 1812. It'd be very difficult to do. What you'd know is there were rockets and they had a red glare and there were some bombs and what? They burst in air. And, and most people, when they hear that, they think what? Fireworks. All my life as a child, at least all my childhood, I just assumed the song was about the 4th of July and fireworks and bottle rockets. So I didn't know it had anything to do with the war. So the song and the flag became symbolic of, of a sturdiness, of a patriotism, of a willingness to stand, a willingness to, to hold your ground, of courage, of valor. Now the flag is just a flag, but as a symbol, it's come to mean much more. But if you were fast forward 2,000 years into the future and someone found a flag and maybe the poem, they, they might scratch their head and go, what on earth is this whole flag thing about? Why are people so excited about it? And if they found some of our history of how many of us react when the flag is, is, is disrespected, boy, it, that would even be more curious to people in the future of why we would be so upset. They'd just go, it's this fabric. Give me a break. What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal in your cultural context. Now, I've overused an illustration here for a point. The point is this, is that in the ancient cultures, when you grabbed an image and employed an image, it would be like the flag. It would be a communal value. It would speak to people. It would, it would, invo it would evoke something in them. So let's move from the flag to a couple of the key pictures that are in this garden. And we'll start with the garden. So we're told that this all takes place in a garden. Now, when we hear garden, we think vegetable garden or maybe a gentleman's farm or something like that. But the gardens of that culture would have been attached to temples, would have been attached to king's palaces. Picture 
Central Park, a botanical garden, something beautifully curated, crafted. How many of you suffered through Downton Abbey at some point, right? A lot of us were inflicted on it. And most of us partway into it were like, I'm American, what do I even care? This is the end of colonialism, that's okay. But we watched it, right? But what, what did they have? Beautiful home. And they had those attached gardens that just went on for miles and miles reminding us of the extreme wealth those people enjoyed, right? And, and it was a statement. It was a statement of, of, uh, of beauty, of richness, of wealth, of opulence. Well, in the ancient culture, when they heard the term garden, they understood that it had sort of this sacred idea attached to it. It was special. It was, it was the sort of um, thing that only truly existed for royal people attached to royal palaces. It was, a, it was, in Nebuchadnezzar's world, one of the wonders of the world, his hanging gardens, which didn't hang, by the way. They were sort of terraced gardens, which makes me wonder, why didn't they call them the terrace gardens? Because it's confusing, isn't it? They didn't hang those gardens, but that's its own story. Anyhow, the question is, whose garden is it, though? It's a garden. Who owns the garden? It's God's garden. God has a garden, and he puts Adam in his garden. And then there's what? There's a river, another very rich symbol, a, a, a meaningful symbol, the river. And this is an arid part of the world, so in an arid part of the world, the river valleys were these lush things and they were symbolic of fertility and of fruitfulness. And in the list of rivers, there's the Tigris and Euphrates, we know them, and there's the, the other two, and we have best guesses of where they're at. Just read it again. A river watering the gardens flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold, the gold in that land is good. And as we noted before, it's, it'd be okay to have bad gold, but they have good gold. And they have aromatic resin and onyx there as well. And the name of the second river is the Gehan, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. And I made a joke about it being cushy and no one laughed. And then the name of the third river is the Tigris. And we know that river. And it runs along the east side of the Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So what we do is we hear stuff like that and we get kind of excited and we go, where is it? We have a map. So let's see, it would be, if you see off to the right, there's a thing called Lake Van. It, you see Euphrates River and Tigris River. In theory, it's somewhere in that general vicinity in modern day Turkey, south of the Black Sea, north of Iraq, north of Syria, somewhere in that general neck of the woods. But the labeling, the naming of those rivers and the headwaters of those four rivers has nothing to do with its geographical placement. The point the narrator is trying to get at here isn't it took place there. Go find it. To our knowledge, no one went looking for it. How come? Like, wouldn't you go looking for it after you read that? If you were part of the ancient culture, wouldn't you have packed your camel or your donkey and said, I'm going to look for the garden. Maybe the cherubim's still there guarding the thing. Why wouldn't you go do it? Because the, the purpose of telling them that wasn't to communicate. It is 700 miles to the northwest. The point of telling them this is to locate it in this concept, this area 
that the ancient peoples would have seen as sort of like where the gods were, serious sacred space. The mountainous regions, the Armenian mountains in there, those would have been considered very special, sacred kind of mountains. That the water flowed from somewhere up in there. And they weren't interested in being explorers. They were interested in the concept that those rivers represented something. They represented something of God's provision, of God's abundance of his provision. There wasn't just a river, there were four rivers. That, that river supplied four rivers, meaning that was a very powerful, significant, important river. If that is true of that river, that means something about where this garden is. This garden is a special place. It's not any old yield garden. This is a sacred, sacred garden. Many years ago, my family and I, we lived in uh, Northern California, just three hours north of Yosemite. And I remember the first time my wife and I went down to Yosemite, how many of you, any of you been to Yosemite before? A few of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You drive into the Yosemite Valley and, and uh, you see El Capitan and you see Half Dome. And it's, it's absolutely breathtaking. The Sentinel is off to your right and it's stunning. Most of us, if not all of us, have seen images, seen pictures of the thing. When you get inside the valley, you, you just pull the car off. And you just stare and take a bunch of pictures. And then you drive another 100 yards and you pull the car off and you stare and you take more pictures and you slowly crawl your way through the Yosemite Valley. And then if you've got a little courage, you go up to Glacier Point and that's high elevation and a lot of switchbacks. But when you finally get up to that point, when we were up there, there was a lot of people up there, but it was really quiet. The only people making noise were just like little kids who are squawking because they can't help it. But all the adults did the same thing. You step out of your vehicle, you walk across a path, you come to Glacier Point and you're looking straight across at Half Dome. And there's silence. And everyone is just in awe of this. It's breathtaking. But it's not the artistic wonder of it. it you, you feel in that moment, you are on holy ground. It feels in that moment that you're to slip off your shoes and just stand there in awe in the presence of the creator's creation, in awe of what the creator had done. And the native people who were native to that area before any Europeans got there, they labeled that as, as, as a special divine space. It was sacred, sacred space. And they're not wrong. When you go in there, you recognize this is a a temple of sorts. John Muir, who was a, a great kind of heartbeat of the national park movement, when John Muir saw Yosemite and other national parks, but Yosemite in particular, when he saw that, he recognized what it was. This was a temple of sorts. This was sacred. This was special. And so what's being described here without pictures is that, is this breathtaking awe so as the story, imagine the story being told around the campfire time and again. There's no Netflix. Hey, tell the story of creation again. And so around the campfire, dad or mom or grandpa or grandma tells this story. And the kids, as they're just sitting there with their head up against a knee, they have their eyes closed and they're imagining what this must look like. And to us, we go, give us more words, give us more descriptions. 
But those few words were so rich in meaning that those children could fill in the gaps. Those young people could see it and they wanted to be there and they knew that it was sacred, sacred space. And then within the garden, there's two trees. We're told there's a tree of life and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees, special trees, unlike anything else. And the tree of life, if we understand both the context of it and what's said later that we'll get to in coming weeks, the tree of life is probably not a tree where you eat the fruit and you live forever. It's probably a fruit that has a sustaining power to it, that it extends life, that it, that it gives you some sort of sustenance that either heals a wound or, or extends the life that you have. And again, we'll get to that in next week or the week after that, but, but let it just be clear in our mind, this isn't a magic tree that if you're lucky enough to get one of the fruit off this tree, you live forever. This is a tree that the man and woman had access to. Some scholars even suggest when they take the ages of the ancients, literally, if you get deeper into Genesis, it'll say, and Adam lived for hundreds of years. And some people hear that and they're like, that's crazy. People don't live that long. But it's possible that maybe that early group of people, if Adam had access to that fruit, Eve had access to that fruit, perhaps the sustaining power of that was so strong that before it completely filtered through the early people, maybe it extended life to an extreme extent like that. We don't know. We can't, we can't be certain of that, but that tree of life had significance to it. There's a story uh, in the first Chronicle of Narnia. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, most people know the line, the witch in the wardrobe. But in book one, the magician's nephew, the young boy in the story ends up in, in uh, bouncing around some of the worlds as they're being formed. And he's there when Narnia is formed. And there's a particular tree that has a particular fruit. And the boy brings one of these into his world. And his mother, spoiler alert, but the book's been out for 70 years. So I'm going to tell you the end, but it's still worth a read. The boy ends up obtaining some of the fruit in his land, gives it to his dying mother, and it restores her health. And she lives now, as the Chronicles develop, it doesn't mean that she lives forever. It just had a restorative health-giving power to it. And Lewis was invoking the image of the tree of life, that it would have this special quality to it, that access to it could extend life. And there's also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil is an interesting one because we'll get into this in coming weeks, but when we see good and evil paired together like that, it can mean four different things. That the, the, the knowledge of good and evil could produce an ability to pass judgment. It could give an ability to discern what is true. It can give uh, some sort of internal discrimination between right and wrong. Or uh, it can also speak to the life stage in the Old Testament. It could speak to the life stage of a child when they can't live independently. In other words, the child does not have the knowledge of good and evil. They, just, they can't be trusted to be on their own. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what it is not, it is not a symbol of sex. In our modern culture, we want to see sex in everything. It is not a symbol of sex. It is not a magic fruit that makes a person all-knowing. 
and it isn't a trick that God played on people. Now, we're gonna talk about that tree next week, but I wanted to just note it while it's here. So when we put all this together, we put all this together, there's a garden, there's headwaters of the river, there's special trees, and what this means is that this is sacred space. It's not just a beautiful garden. It's sacred. It's holy. This is a place where God is communing with his creation. This is, for lack of a better term, a temple or a church. It's the first one. This is a place where God met with his people. And as such, Adam ends up serving in a priestly role. So we've got to ask ourselves, why is this story here? And if we back up to the times in which this whole section of Scripture was probably pulled into one segment of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this is the telling of a story of God from the very, very beginning. He wants communion with his people. Now, for us, we go, well, yeah, of course he does. I've known that my whole life. But if you have just exited Egypt, and for 400 years, you have been made to build other people's stuff, and for generation after generation after generation after generation, you were the possession, the personal possession of the government, and you had to do what they told you to do, and they could put you to death anytime they wanted, and the work was miserable, and it got worse during your lifetime. Wouldn't you at some point kind of go, if there's a God, he's not very helpful at all. What on earth? Where is he? The Egyptian gods seem to be better. And then come the plagues that completely dismember all the Egyptian gods. And so the wilderness, as the people are out there, there has to be a story that is represented to the pe presented to the people. And so, presumably Moses takes these stories, true stories, stories that have been passed down for generations. Maybe they were in scroll form. Maybe they were in verbal oral form and pulls them together. And he says to the people, there's a God. You are created in his image. You are made for a purpose. And the very first of us was created to serve in a priestly role of worship, of tending a garden. That's God's intent. All right, well, let's move on to the second point in your, in your program. From the beginning, work was a spiritual undertaking. Now, for some of us, that invokes a groan, like work cannot be spiritual. Work is the bane of my existence. For some people, they approach work and go, I'd rather not think about work. In fact, thank you for reminding me I came to church tonight to not think about work, and now we're gonna talk about work. Well, Verse, uh, we'll start with verse 15. It said, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but, uh, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And, and it says here that the Lord God took, man, took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Those two words linked together, work it and take care of it. There is uh, two Hebrew terms that are being linked together here. Work it, it sounds like all bad. So there's almost a, like a work joke in that, like jo work is not all bad. 
But in this case, work is all bad. That's like that cushy joke earlier, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. They just get worse as the night goes on. And then the other Hebrew word, take care of it, it sounds like shamar. And when, what's fascinating, though, is most of the time when those two words occur together in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, almost every instance where those two words are linked, it has the image, the idea of the service to God, that this is an act of service to God, that to work, to take care of, to maintain, this is what the Levitical priests did, this is what the prophets did, this is what faithful people did. They, they took care of something, they maintained something to God. This, this is a significant don't miss kind of thing. Work has this spiritual component God placed man and then gave him a job description and it all is spiritual. And here's why I find this particularly fascinating. This explains why work is so important to us. Think about it. Think about the work that either you do or the work that you did. Maybe some of you are retired and you reflect back on the work you did. And for some of you, you reflect back on the work you did and you're proud of it. And, and for some of you, you reflect back on the work and it's full of disappointment. But work has this definitive quality of us. And if you love what you do, you tend to love your life. If you've achieved some of the goals that you've set out for yourself, you go, this is a good life. This is good work. And if work is disappointing, then we go, well, this is a terrible job. I don't like what I do and I don't like who I've become. And so just a few diagnostic questions for you just to think about with this whole idea of work as a spiritual aspect of our lives. Just, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think, how many of you find meaning in your work? Your, your work gives you some kind of meaning. And I mean, the role you play affirms or encourages who you are. And again, for some of you, you're retired, so you have to think back a little bit. Or maybe you think about a terrific day. You have a terrific day at work, and as a result of that, there's peace or calm or joy that washes over you. Or sometimes as you drift off to sleep at night, you think about an aspect of your job and how you could do that job better. You approach it like a riddle or a puzzle, and you're trying to work it out. Maybe in the middle of the night, you spring out of bed and you write something down on a, on a post-it note next to your side of the bed about something to do with the work that you do. Work is, a, is an important facet of who we are. And so we find, if you think about how you view what is spiritual, spiritual in our lives gives us meaning, brings us joy, it brings us peace, uh, it helps us give our best. We, we find community as a result of it. And all of that speaks to work as a spiritual undertaking. And we look back at this section of scripture and go, I think I know where I get that from. It's sometimes easier to find on the flip side. Uh, some of us have work we do not like. So if you've ever experienced any of the fun, have you ever been disappointed in your leader, your supervisor, your boss, the owner of the company, CEO? Have you, have you, ever, have you ever thought of the work culture and gone, this culture here is lame? Have you ever quit a job that paid, paid the bills, but you just didn't like the people you were doing it with? 
the people you were working alongside, they just annoyed you, disappointed you? Have you ever thought, man, I'm doing more and everyone else is doing the bare minimum? Have you ever thought, man, it just depresses me to go here. I don't want to be in this place anymore. If you've ever felt that and ever wondered, why do I feel that way? I'm still getting paid. In fact, practically speaking, shouldn't the best job be the one that you do the minimal amount of work for and get the paid the maximum for? Shouldn't that be the best job? Shouldn't you brag to your friends or have bragged to your friends like this job, it's easy, I'm overpaid, I underdeliver constantly, job security, no one cares, right? And yet, and yet, here's the weird part. If that's your life, it kills you. It does. If that is the work that you do, you sort of hate the job, you hate yourself, you kick the dog, you're always upset. Very rarely is a person super cheerful in a place that they don't like. Now, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, sure, we have to spend a lot of time there, but have you ever given yourself the pep talk? No, I don't like any of these people or what I do, but I get paid well. But at some point, most people, they just sort of move on. In fact, there's, a, there's sort of a cliche in modern work circles. People quit bosses, they don't quit jobs. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. If you still get paid, why would you do that? Because work's really important to us. Why is it important? Because work is sacred. It isn't just work. We are occupying a sacred undertaking. Now, if you go, uh, okay, but I'm not in a garden, okay? That was sacred space. I work in an office with morons. I would totally love to be around a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil, but I work, I'm pretty sure, with the devil. Okay, how do you approach work in that view? Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, why would Paul say that? Because most people do their best work when it's review time or the boss is watching. And Paul said, even when nobody's looking, do incredible work. Why? Do it for the reverence of the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And this is, this is just absolutely stunning. Paul is talking, New Testament here, this is an Old Testament, there's no garden, it's Roman Empire, you're owned as a slave by somebody else, you're not in a profit sharing, there's no retirement, your best retirement plan is hope to die as healthy as you can, as quickly as you can, that's the best retirement you got out of you, right? You're a slave, and Paul says, when you work, do really good work, put your whole heart into it. What was your motivation for doing it? Reverence, an act of worship to the Lord. This is the backbone of what's called the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic, a historically used term to describe how Protestants would really try to do their very, very best because of this passage. This was the guiding spirit. Work is under the Lord. Work as hard as you can, do the best job you can. 
And then, hey, if you can make as much as you can so that you can give as much of it away as you can, that's even a bonus. But do really, really good work. Why would you do really good work for, for bosses that don't treat you very well? Because it honors God. So God sees what you're doing and he has the ability to reward you and his reward system's really good. So don't be worried about the reward system God can provide. It's terrific. It, it, unlike the market, doesn't do this. It's gonna be there. It's gonna be splendid. So do it out of reverence for the Lord as an act of worship. All right, well, we better keep hustling along or we're gonna run out of time when we talk about relationships. So the next topic here, if you're filling in the, the blanks, is that God created us with a need for deep relationships. This deep need for deep relationships is a, is a God-ordained design. And so we, work, we look at verse 18, starting verse 18, right on through 20. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So the man's got a job to do. He's got a great relationship with God. He's busy, but it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So, so Adam's got something to do. He's like, Dog, horse, cow, whatever. He brought, the, brought them to see the man. He'd name him, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, doubling down on it, no suitable helper was found. Now, growing up as a kid, you didn't want to be considered anybody's helper, right? I mean, isn't that kind of a term? Like there, you know, to be a, a helper of somebody, you know what that meant. You got to like sort of carry the tools or clean up after they got done doing something. My wife's a gourmet. In the kitchen, I'm her helper. That means that occasionally I open jars. Um, I've been known to boil water. I do that well some days. But I like to clean up after her. She cooks good food. I am happy to clean up the kitchen afterwards. She has made good food. She can sit down. I will be glad to load the dishwasher, wash all the dishes, put things away. I am happy to do that. I am her helper. In the kitchen, I am not her equal, okay? Not even close. That's not that word. The problem with helper is that in our culture, it's Bill in the kitchen with his wife not her equal. That's not the word. The, the word, as a matter of fact, is a, is a word, azer. And every time, every year at Christmas, we hear half of this, Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge. Eben is stone, like ebony. Eben is stone, and azer is, is, uh, is this Hebrew term for helper. So Ebenezer Scrooge is like this symbol, this rock, this, uh, this uh, monument of help, which through the entire story is not what he is until what? The very end. And then Ebenezer lives up to his name. He becomes truly a stone that helps, like a monument of help. But an azer is a helper, but not in the sense of subordinate. Whenever you see azer throughout the rest of the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it is always somebody who rushes to or comes to the aid of somebody in need. 
So usually it's God coming to the aid of Israel. God is the azer, the helper to Israel. Real question, is God weaker than Israel? The answer is no. Just in case you're curious, no. God is stronger than Israel. In fact, most of the time when the azer shows up, the azer is more powerful than that person being helped. And so the picture here is that there is no very strong for Adam. Not, you know, he could really use someone to clean up. You know, when he, when he gets real stumped on an animal name, maybe he could turn to someone and they could have a try every 10th or 20th animal. It is not that. This is a much, much bigger and more important piece. And then the idea of suitable, uh, the old Hebrew neked, is uh, a partner uh, or counterpartner, as uh, one scholar puts it. And so Adam's got this work to do, and there's no counterpartner. There's nobody that has some strength that can, can, can not just uh, come alongside, but truly shoulder to shoulder bear the burden with him. He looks around and he sees the animal creation and he's like, there's a male and a female, there's a male and a female, there's a male and a female, there's a male and a female. I got nobody. I got God, but I got nobody. And God sees this incidentally before Adam does. Now maybe, maybe Adam noted it. Maybe he had a little, little, little leaf journal or something and wrote it in there. But we do not know that Adam noted it. God noted it. Just a great reminder. God sees what we need before we see what we need. He's, where, he's very aware. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, the man he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves a father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And it says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, again, this is a great reminder that this is a, a formation story. This is not first and for, this is a function story, not first and foremost, a, a formation story. And so sometimes people get to this and like, did really God perform a surgery? Maybe he did. Is God capable of doing that? Absolutely. God's God, so God can do what God does. God doesn't check what he wants to do with us. He doesn't need our permission. He doesn't need us to sign off. He doesn't have to go to a university research lab and say, what do you guys think? I just wanna make sure I bend my stuff to your rules. He doesn't have to do that. Didn't do it, doesn't do it, doesn't have to do that. However, we always have to ask, what's the text clearly teach? because we shouldn't make the text say things it doesn't say. And so we have to ask, are they teaching a science class here? Did a little boy go, hey, where'd girls come from? Well, God did a surgery, pulled out a rib and gave it, and then she became boop, boop, woman. Now, could God do that that way? He certainly could. God can do that. God can create out of nothing this, so he can. But that's not first and foremost what we are to pull out of the story. In fact, it's not a rib at all. In the old language, it's a side. It's like a side of beef is the, the term is used of, like a side of beef. And so it actually, if you, if you wanna get a little more graphic and gruesome, it was sort of like the man fell into sleep and he, maybe it's a trance, maybe it's a vision, maybe he understands it happening, maybe he doesn't understand it happened, and then half of him and there's a new person. 
And so whether it was a divide and then something new or whether it really is something more richly symbolic, it doesn't matter. What needs to be understood is this explains why a guy will leave the most important relationships he has experienced up till then and cleave to somebody new. This is why a guy who says to his mom every night, I love you, you're the woman for me, all of a sudden stops saying that because there's a new woman in his life. This explains why a guy who's happy as a clam working alongside dad in the shop suddenly isn't in the shop so much anymore because he's making googly eyes at another person, a sweet young lady. That explains why that happens. Why do we know that that's what this story is saying? Because that's what this story says. That's why, because there's something where a guy, there's an incompleteness, and then his eyes are open, and there she is, and he says, you complete me. Right? He may not say that, but he feels that. It was uh, 1995. I just graduated. I just finished graduate school. I got a brand new job. I was working at a college up in West Michigan. I was very excited. I was a poorly paid administrator at this little private school. Uh, a friend of mine who I had dated kind of on and off, but we were friends. We were just friends. She, uh, she and I were hanging out and she said, I'll give you a tour of where you're going to be uh, working. And so Kara is her name and she was kind enough to give me a tour. She goes, you know, I want to introduce you to my friend Karen. And, and uh, I've told you all about Karen. And I'm like, I don't remember any Karen, but sure, I'm up for meeting people. And so Karen came down the steps. She had a pencil in her hair. And it was, it was, uh, it was the time for final exams. And so I'm small talking with Karen and I was smitten right away. I saw her and I'm like, Cara, nothing. I was done. I was, I was on sort of a date with Cara up till that moment. And then a new date started. Karen didn't even know it was a date at that point, but we were on a date. And so I'm, I'm asking her all kinds of questions. What are you studying? I want to be a nurse. Why, uh, what, well, what's your final exam? I'm, I'm taking Greek. Why are you taking Greek? I, I want to know the New Testament better. If it would have been legally permissible and I wouldn't have received a restraining order, I would have proposed to her right then and there. I'm not kidding. I was totally taken with her. I go home that night. I told my mother, I met the woman I'm going to marry. And my mother, who'd never heard that out of me, she was like, all right, tell me about the girl. And I told her about the girl. I have a to-do list still in a little memento box that I wrote that week about all the things in preparation for moving into my apartment. Get a couch, get some dishes, marry Karen Wallace. It's like the third thing on the list. It was so early, I didn't even know that her name is K-A-R-Y-N. I had spelled it K-A-R-E-N. I didn't even, who knew? And so I was completely taken. I was head over heels. I was so crazy about Karen that, that when Karen and I started dating, there was still a former boyfriend around that she still kind of dated. Now, I knew that I would win or go to jail for killing that guy. One of the two things was going to be, because I was taken. I was so excited to spend the rest of my life with Karen, I didn't even propose. I produced a diamond ring about four months after our first date. We've already told our girls, don't ever do this. But it worked for us. But after our first, four months after our first date, I produced a ring and I just said, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And she looked at me and I'm like, well? And she's like, is there a question? 
I didn't even get down on my knees. It was, in my defense, very muddy out that particular time, but she agreed to marry me. We were married the following July. That's 24 years ago, 24 years ago. Hey, yeah, thanks. Well, that's nice. I, for this cause, a man leaves his father and mother. Uh, from, from that moment on, I liked my parents a lot, but there wasn't the same level of attachment. If Karen and my folks had a disagreement, I, I, I'm gonna stay with Karen. And there's something in this story here that is fascinating. Some people ask the obvious question, why doesn't the woman have to leave her father and mother? Because in that culture, she did. That was assumed. In that culture, a woman left her father and mother, joined the guy's family. They didn't need to say it. It would have been a redundancy. But what needed to be said is the dude's got to leave his father and mother. And, and there's a sort of an encouragement or a challenge in this for many of us in this room. And it could function two different ways. One of the challenges for those who, who have parents who keep inserting themselves into the relationship to figure out a a way to draw up a wall, a fence, a boundary, a barrier, and say, love you, mom and dad, but we have our relationship now. We're a unit now. And then there's another for many of us in this room. Karen and I have two girls in college, and at some point, some guy's gonna figure it out, and they're gonna end up being pursued by some guys. I hate those guys already right now. I had never met them. I don't know their names. I despise them. But as a parent, I know that there's gonna become a place where it'll break my heart, where I will be thrilled for their independence and the new relationship. And there'll be this sad part, like, I changed your diapers. How could you do this to us? But for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and he'll cleave to his wife and the two will become one. They'll become something new. They'll start a brand new family unit. And that will be very exciting. And so as we, uh, as we close this out, we get this picture right up front, that work is sacred. Relationships are sacred. God saw our needs before we saw our needs. But part of his work with us is, is that communing with us, that relating to us in the sacred place of the garden, sacred space of the garden. And so the question that we're gonna start answering next week is, so what went wrong? Why is it so messed up. And if you're really curious, spoiler alert, there's a snake involved and you have to come back next week. Let me close in prayer. Thanks God for your word, the chance to get together, your goodness to us, your provision for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus name. Amen. Have a great night.